Before we get started, I have a quick favor. I've been self-funding the Finding Genius podcast for five years now. I've done over 3,000 episodes. And as you can see on YouTube, we're up over a million views on the channel, which is fantastic. The next thing I really want to push on is to get up to 10,000 subscribers. Because once we do, we'll be able to put a donate button and uh, we'll be able to solicit donations uh, to help keep the podcast running and to also get the Finding Genius Foundation moving along. We have a big project studying anxiety, depression, and PTSD, and working on a product to help people overcome these problems uh, because I've seen them explode recently after the, uh, you know, the last two years of the whole virus situation. So if you would, please subscribe to the podcast. That would help us tremendously. Give us a thumbs up. And check in the description for Buy Me a Coffee. It's about five bucks. If you could buy me a coffee, I'd really appreciate it. It would help keep the channel going, and I love coffee. Thank you. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out, and I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have Kent J. Bradford. He's a professor emeritus, a director emeritus as well at UC Davis. And we're going to talk about uh, seed biology and uh, plants and water and, and all that stuff. So, Kent, thank you for coming. Appreciate appreciate the invitation. Yeah, if you would, tell me what, what are you working on right now? I know you're a professor emeritus, but are you still doing research or are you writing or what's your current activity? Uh, yeah, I'm doing a little bit of both. Uh, I'm uh, still writing some uh, some things, uh, finishing up some publications that we had uh, data for before. Uh, writing some, uh, just finished a chapter in a book. <laughs> just uh, should be coming out next next week. I still have one project in the lab where we're looking at uh, tomato seed quality in relation to uh, how the seeds are produced. So uh, yeah, I have one project remaining, but largely uh, slowed down in the uh, the current activities in my lab. But what have you been studying over the years? Like, what are what are some of the um, really interesting experiments and things you've worked on that you remember? 
Well, I've worked on uh, almost everything to do with seed biology. So uh, once I got this position at UC Davis, uh, I was hired to be a seed biologist. And uh, the department I was hired into was vegetable crops. So my best expertise, I think, is in uh, uh, vegetable seeds and uh, their production and use uh, in uh, producing crops. But I've also worked on a number of different agronomic crops. I've worked on some wild species and so on. And uh, worked on just about every aspect from... uh, pollination of flowers to the development of the seeds, uh, uh, storage of the seeds, uh, planting, germination, and then around to seed production again. So I've, I've been in most parts. I'd say the most, uh, we've put probably concentrated most strongly on uh, germination. That is on uh, the physiology and, and biology of how seeds uh, germinate or don't, either because they're dormant or because they're uh, they're too old. Yeah, I've noticed when I, um, when I get seeds, you know, from a store and I plant uh I put them all in those little like peat moss type, you know, starters and you water them and everything. Not all of them grow. You know, what, what, what are some of the important factors and why do some of them have very low yield and some of them, most of them grow or all of them grow? Yeah, that's, uh, that's always a question. I mean, that's become a central part of what we look at is that, uh, when you buy seeds, they're all little individuals and they do behave differently. And, uh, that can come from several, several aspects. Uh, sometimes they're just not viable for various reasons. Uh, for example, carrot seeds, uh, there's an insect, ligus bug, that will go and, uh, and penetrate the seeds as they're developing and eat the little embryos out. And, and the embryo itself is a very small part of the seed. So the seed can go ahead and develop and you have a big uh, normal looking seed, but it has no embryo, so it, it can't really germinate. So sometimes it's damaged like that, that uh, the certain fractions of the seeds don't germinate. They can be damaged uh, by breaking them. If you take bean seeds and you drop them on a concrete floor, you've lost some germination. Some of them, some of them are going to break and, and damage. Another main thing too is just how how old they are. If you notice on uh, seed packets, as you as you mentioned, uh, there should be a percentage number on there, and it should give the date of that last test. So generally, for commercial seeds, uh, they should have been tested within about six months prior to when they're sold, and uh, and there should be a number on there, which should be a minimum. That is, they should germinate at least that high, but it won't be a hundred percent. Usually, around eighty-five percent or so is what what's on a label. Oh, how do they test uh, seeds? What would that testing look like? Yeah, so seed tests is quite a very specialized uh, process and industry in itself with uh, international organizations and so on. Because, uh, you know, I mentioned this labeling on seed packets, you know, that's a legal uh, situation. If you're going to buy and sell seeds, uh, you want to know how many live seeds there are, what the fraction of uh, percentage of live seeds are. So how you test that, of course, is very important then. So there's a very strict set of rules. That is, you you generally put the seeds in some type of... uh, like on a filter paper or uh, in soil or various ways, uh, give them some water and then very specific recommendations on the temperatures to keep them at and uh, uh, things like that, uh, that will give them the best opportunity. So the the numbers you see on a seed packet are probably the best. That is that's with no stress and uh, optimal conditions and so on. But uh, it's a very important number, as you say, because uh, when you're buying and selling seeds, everyone is going by the same rules. So there are international seed, seed testing associations and so on that help to uh, establish those standards. Okay. Um, so what, I don't know, what are some of the factors where you, uh, like, well, first of all, maybe this is a really elementary question, but, you know, I go to the store, I buy a packet of seeds. I don't think about anything. Where do the seeds come from? And like, <laughs> you know, they, I know they come from the crop, but is part of the crop, you know, seg- segmented off for seed production and, are they grown in a different way or, you know, how are seeds made and why? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Uh, you know, this, we get this a lot, too, you know, people who don't like seed companies. Well, why don't farmers just save their own seed? 
that does happen, and it does happen particularly in uh, less advanced parts of the world. But in general, farmers don't save their own seed. <laughs> it's a very specialized process, and you're right. You just you grow the crop, and uh, and you you designate that for seed. But in most cases, it's it's not really just a part of the field. That can happen in uh, wheat or some very large uh, acre. Uh, crops, but as I mentioned, in in uh, vegetable crops and and any higher value crops, the production of seeds uh, is a completely separate process. Uh, you know, it's not hard to imagine. Uh, you know, radish. Have you ever had a you know a seed in your radish? No, <laughs> it's a completely different part of the life cycle. If you have uh, root vegetables like beets or mm. radishes and so on, carrots. You know, most farmers who are growing carrots are just growing for the roots. The seed production actually happens in a second year. So you grow those carrots roots another year, then they flower, and then you harvest the seed. So it's a completely distinct process to produce seed than it is uh, others. In bigger crops, uh, maize, for example, corn, many other crops, cotton, uh, not cotton, but uh, maize uh, primarily, but the seeds are also hybrids, meaning that they're produced by specific male and female plants being grown side by side. The pollen comes from the male plants, fertilizes the female plants, and then you harvest only those female plants to sell the seed. And uh, that provides uh, genetic benefits from, from both parents, and you get very vigorous and uniform plants uh, in the hybrid, which is what we want. But if you save the seed from those hybrids, all of those genes segregate out again, and you don't you don't have a uniform crop. So you have to produce those seeds every year. So all of those hybrid crops, those seeds are produced specifically the year before by growing specific male and female parents, and then uh, separate collecting the seed only from the female. So it's a much more involved process than you might imagine. So what what percentage of a uh, a farmer's output or crop or whatever it needs? I guess you said they don't produce their own seeds, but ideally. How much would they have to dedicate of their resources and time, et cetera, in order to make sure that they not only get a harvest, but also get seeds for uh, next season? Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, We need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from $10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Yeah, that depends somewhat on the crop. I mean, some crops, you know, are, like I mentioned, carrots or something, make a lot of seed for one plant. <laughs> but uh, if you think of uh, uh, some other crops, uh, it's not so much. That is, uh, if you think of a uh, corn, for example, if you had an ear of corn, there's usually only one of those per plant. So there may be 300 kernels on that cob on that ear of corn. So you could think, well, I could make 300 times as much and I don't only need to keep, you know, one three hundredth, a third of a percent of my area for seed. But again, that's not the way it's done. Usually it's a fairly small fraction. I mean, it's one or two percent, three percent of your of your area you might need because each plant is going to make quite a few uh, seeds. But so if you're a, if you're a, a corn, I mean, a, a wheat farmer or, or some crop where they do actually uh, collect seed, I would say it's probably in the, in the few percentages, you know, you would need to keep that aside and you, you have to know your planting rates and your area. So you just calculate, okay, I need a certain amount of pounds of seed uh, for my planting. And then you just have to plan on that. And, and again, when you're doing it yourself, you don't have all the opportunities to 
clean that and separate it and so on and, and uh, clean out the, the poor ones. So you'd probably save a little bit extra. But again, uh, not very many crops uh, in, uh, in modern agriculture uh, are done that way. Nearly all the crop, nearly all farmers, even wheat farmers will probably buy new seeds every second or third year, if they, even if they are saving their own. Well, just as I mentioned, over time, uh, if you're not being careful, uh, you accumulate other problems. You accumulate weeds, for example, if you don't have the facilities to separate those out. I mean, there's a lot of cleaning involved in, in seeds as well. So you can have weeds that you're propagating. Diseases uh, can get into crops and can be propagated by seeds. So if you continually <laughs> propagate those and that, that disease spreads in the crop and you harvest those seeds, then it just becomes a, a vicious cycle. And uh, these are the types of things why seed production is quite distinct. That is, they're very, very careful on uh, uh, diseases, have strict rules on, you know, zero tolerance. They test a lot of uh, uh, seeds for uh, for different diseases and make sure there are no seed-borne diseases in them. Uh, pollination, if it's a crop that is pollinated by insects, then uh, those seed crops have to be isolated uh, away from other varieties that you don't want to mixing with. <laughs> so uh, in California, for example, we have... Uh, well, oh, mostly. you could store a bunch of seeds and then insects could get in and pollinate them. And then you're like, oh, no. Uh, no, actually in the field. I mean, what I'm saying is that in the field, if, if you have to sunflowers, for example, the good example, we grow a lot of sunflower seeds here in California. And mm. those are pollinated by insects like bees. They provide a lot of bees to the field to, uh, to pollinate those. And as part of that seed production process, because you really want only that one particular line that you've planted to provide the pollen that pollinates and makes the seed. If you have a growing a lot of different varieties in the same area like we are, then each field has to be isolated by approximately two miles from every other field because bees can fly two or three two or three miles pollinated. And if they start going back and forth between different fields, then you're going to end up with your seed not being genetically true to what you want. So there's a lot of uh, coordination among the seed companies in that in terms of uh, they have what they used to call pinning maps, where at the start of the season, they'd all gather and get a map of, <laughs> of where they're going to grow in the county or something, put a pin on there and say, here's my field. And you draw a circle around that and say, well, I hope nobody else grows in that region. Uh, now we have that all electronically. So there's Google Maps and they have uh, pinning maps where you can go on uh, electronically if you're a seed producing company and say, I'm going to I'm planting a certain field here and when we're going to plant, when we're going to harvest and they're going to be pollinated. And uh, the companies, it's generally voluntary, but the seed companies, everybody loses if, uh, if that's not uh, adhered to. So generally, they're quite good at cooperating with each other and uh, obeying, uh, respecting each other's uh, isolation limits. But that's a big part of seed production is what we call isolation. That is making sure that the, uh, the fields, depending on the type of pollination that's, that operates there, uh, is respected. Some crops uh, like wheat, barley and so on, they pollinate themselves. So you can have them very close to each other. Tomatoes don't move very far. Others like uh, sunflowers, I mentioned, it's a couple of miles. We have some that are wind pollinated, sugar beets or spinach, and some of these uh, crops like that, uh, wind pollinated. And there you can, you can have uh, even three miles of isolation around the field to make sure you're getting the right pollen. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So who is responsible for, um, I don't know, making sure there's enough seeds for enough species and where, who does that role fall to? Yeah, that's, uh, that's the seed industry. <laughs> that is, it's pretty much open, uh, competition out there of who can make seed that, uh, satisfies what the farmers want. So, uh, to a large degree in, in the U.S., that's, uh, strictly an economic, uh, situation that is, uh, 
largely it's the, uh, we also have public uh, sources, particularly again in some of the grain crops, uh, alfalfa uh, and so on, larger uh, agronomic crops where universities also can get involved and they can have breeders and they can provide that seed uh, through through public sources. But there's no real, uh, there's really not an overriding uh, control of that. I mean, there's nobody sitting there saying we need some more of this seed or that seed. It just works by, you know, demand uh, for certain varieties and certain traits that people want. It's driven in the end by the consumers. I mean, just like farmers are sort of uh, takers in terms of what they, the consumers want, that's what they have to grow. If you grow what farmers don't, what consumers don't want, that's a dead end. And it's the same for the seed industry. You have to be providing seeds that uh, the growers find beneficial for, for whatever reason. It's a mixture of cost and the traits of the, uh, of the variety, largely the consumer-oriented traits or the use-oriented traits, but also uh, how good is the seed? How fast does it come up? What's the history of that company in terms of, of service? If something goes wrong, all those things figure in. So yeah, it's a strictly a commercial enterprise. Is it a seedy industry? Kind of seedy, but you know, it's interesting because, uh, you know, when I first started in this, uh, you know, a few people told me, oh, seed, seed business, that's kind of a shady and seedy industry. My history, my experience with it is, in fact, the seed industry is within itself is uh, largely a very respectable and conscientious industry. There's always a few people try to get away with things in any industry, I think. But in the seed industry, as I said, everybody's out there with their crops out in the field. Uh, and if anybody is is being a jerk, you know, and not, <laughs> not following the guidelines of isolation and, uh, and other things that everybody has to deal with, they don't last very long, really. They, uh, yeah. One, their you know their product is not going to be very good, and uh, and well, I've heard really... <laughs> bad things like Monsanto. You know, uh, they would they would you know you'd have to buy their seed, and in order to get new, you know, you couldn't you couldn't keep your own seed, and you had to use theirs every year, and they engineered it so you couldn't even if you wanted to, you couldn't do anything with their seed, et cetera. But I'm just a yeah. lay person. Is what I've yeah, heard. that's. You know, that's the story that's out there. And there's certain, there's certain fractions of truth, certain fractions not. It never really turned out that they were, that any seeds got sold that just wouldn't germinate, that they would just die. That was a so-called terminator trait that they were thinking about putting in, but it never actually made it into the market anywhere. But it is true that in, uh, particularly in soybeans, where there was a lot of seed saved by farmers in soybeans. And when they came out with their early traits, uh, herbicide tolerant soybeans, they had rights on that. They had patents on that and so on. And, uh, and the part of what the farmers signed to when they bought that seed was an agreement not to save their seed. So they agreed to that, whether they read the fine print or not, <laughs> mm. uh, they did agree to that, uh, that uh, they would not propagate that. And then there were, I think the, originally the deal was that you could, you could save enough to propagate your own crop. So, I mean, if you had a hundred acres, you bought a hundred acres worth of seed to plant, you could you could save that amount. The people who got into trouble with that is the the farmers who uh, were selling to their neighbors, and their neighbors were clear across two or three states away. So it, uh, you know, if they just started into the business, then they were sort of absconding with the intellectual property of that company, and and those are the mm. ones that got got put out of the chase. But certainly didn't help right. the uh, image of the seed industry that the seed industry was suing farmers for saving seed. But you know, and uh, as I said, uh, farmers buy seed every year. The corn industry, as I said, they're hybrids. You can't save seed, really. And so it's really just a matter of crop by crop whether it's even feasible to save seed. And it's really not unusual for farmers to buy seed. As I said, nearly all farmers are buying right. uh, seed at least every few years. Well, we talk of uh, food shortages and crop yields being in trouble, et cetera. What, do you have any advice for someone that, um, you know, as a farmer, whether they're 
big, small individual at home in terms of, uh, you know, should they cultivate their own seeds? Is there not enough time? Any recommendations? Yeah, I think it'd be to me, of course, uh, seed guy, it, it would be pretty rare situations really where you would really want to go into producing your own seed. It's very complicated. And, and, uh, you know, if you think a lot of times it's, this is, uh, promoted by small farmers who, who want to say sell at farmers markets and so on. And they want to, they don't want to participate in the big uh, commercial seed industry and so on. And they want to save their own seed and so on. But as I said, it's a, it's a very difficult process because a lot of times for those, they're not growing these big uh, uh, broad acre crops. They're growing vegetables or they're growing uh, very targeted, uh, specialized, very high quality. I mean, they can grow very high, high quality stuff, but they also need the genetics. They need the varieties. I mean, the traits of that, and you can't get that without buying the company's uh, seeds. And then if you save that, you know, and propagate your own, which in a lot of cases you can do, a lot of them are not, you know, that's not really uh, protected. Uh, on the other hand, can you really do that? As I said, it's a completely separate process. As, as I mentioned, if you're in the business and you're growing uh, carrots and beets and tomatoes and all these other things, uh, some of them, you just put some, some fruits to the side and extract seed. And the others, it's a completely separate operation. The whole next year, you're going to be out there messing with producing seed <laughs> at the same time that you're trying to grow all these crops. So, you know, if you're a diversified operation, it's very challenging. We do have people that like to grow heirloom crops, for example. They, they, you know, they like to have 50 different types of tomatoes out there and they're maintaining a lot of heirlooms and so on. And really, they don't have much choice except to save uh, a lot of their own seeds. So, uh, fortunately, again, certain crops like tomatoes and so on, that's pretty easy. If it's a crop that uh, that's out, outcrossed, meaning that the, the pollination takes place by insects or something, it gets much more challenging to maintain uh, that exact variety. In the seed companies, for example, they put in cages. You, you, they have net cages and so on where you grow that crop in there to keep all the other insects out. No, uh, Generally, homeowners are not doing that sort of protection of their, their genetic resources. Okay. So, I mean, but the good thing is, I guess you're getting a very high ratio of, even if you do one or 2% of your crops, you know, with the goal of making more seeds, that's, you know, a lot of times that may get you there, it sounds like. Yeah. What you have to do is you have to figure the costs of your, you know, not just your land, your labor and everything, but in general, even with the most expensive uh, seeds, uh, the seed costs are a small fraction of the total. That is, it's less than 5%, often less than 1% of the total value of the crop even buying uh, very high quality seed. So you just have to look at the, the overall situation and say, okay, I'm paying a certain amount to buy seed for this. I could do that myself, but is it really going to pan out? <laughs> is it, you know, just saving some seed, say from a grain crop, that's not a big deal. You just need to have a warehouse or something to save it. But if it's any of these other more specialized crops, for example, nearly all the vegetables the vast majority of them are hybrids, as I mentioned. That is, they're very, they have multiple disease resistances. They have a lot of traits that as a grower, you really want. And if you start taking over the maintenance of that yourself, uh, it's very challenging to keep all of those uh, traits collected together in the same variety. <laughs> that is, they're going to start segregating uh, genetically and you'll have off types and so on. And unless you're a breeder and you really know what to look for, it gets challenging to do that. Again, what, what goes into making, what are some of the aspects, if we could just reiterate, that make a really good seed that's useful? Well, I think the first thing is the, is the genetics. That is, the seed is the delivery system for the genetics. And by the genetics, we need the breeding. So, you know, you, we just kind of take it for, for granted. I, you know, I go to the store, I shop, and there's, uh, you know, there's yellow peppers, there's red peppers, there's green peppers, <laughs> there's uh, uh, purple onions, there's white onions. You know, there's all of these varieties uh, of, of produce 
that we like, and we use it for different uh, different things. You look at a salad mix, look inside of a salad mix uh, package, and you see five, six, seven different types of species in there. Each one of those is a separate variety, specific variety that's produced by a seed company for growers to grow and put together in that mix. So the, the first thing is, what are the traits that are that are being delivered by the seed? So that's the whole breeding process. The, what we call the seed industry is largely a breeding industry. Their main focus is on on uh, making crosses between uh, known types or introducing uh, wilder types if they need it for disease resistance, for, exa- for example, then taking those progeny, selecting them again, and so on. And it takes uh, somewhere between five and 10 years to uh, say 10 on the end of starting from scratch, five where you're just bringing in one new trade or two, uh, to go from those uh, starting points to a seed that you can sell. So it's a, it's a long process. And so, you know, I see the seed as a, you know, it's the culmination of that very elaborate breeding progress uh, process, uh, which is getting more efficient all the time. We have uh, markers now that can follow what genes are inside and so on. So it's, it's becoming more efficient, but it still takes time because every cycle, the plant has to go through its normal cycle, flower, make seed, plant it again, grow it. You know, seed companies advance that by having locations all over the world. They'll take seed as soon as it's uh, mature in, the, in North America. They'll go to Chile in the South America, where it's just springtime there, and you can start again. They go to Hawaii and grow it three or four times a year. So there's various ways that you can speed this up, but uh, the breeding itself is the core of the whole thing. And then the seed is the delivery system for that. The seed quality per se is really about, okay, how efficient is it? At doing that. I mean, as you mentioned, you want 100%. <laughs> right. And this is becoming, a, for example, I just talked with a, a greenhouse producer here in California. We we're, are now kind of in the middle or late end of planting processing tomatoes. We grow a third of the processing tomato in the world in California. He was wow. telling me this one transplant grower, he's growing 60 million transplants within the course of a month or two for this planting. And in his operation, as you say, if he's planted them and he's expecting 95% of them to show up and, and it's only 85, that's 10%. So, you know, that's uh, 6 million plants that aren't showing up that he was planning <laughs> should show up and get sold. Well, well, what do people do? Do they put like two seeds in the same hole or furrow or a three or, or that screw things up? Like, what do you do? Well, that's what they used to do. I mean, it, you can do that. You can double plant, uh, you know, in the cells, but then you have labor to go back and, and pinch those off or, or whatever. I mean, it kind of depends. It's the, the industry is getting more and more sophisticated on that. And, uh, the current direction that the industry is going is, uh, is to where they have processes like plant tape where they, they build a seed, uh, I mean, a little soil packet there with tape with, with plant paper on both sides. They plant a seed in there as they make that, and then there's maybe 300 of those in one flat. I mean, one little flat in a in a greenhouse, and there's no way to replace that. That is, once they come up, that's what's going to get planted, and that tape just spools out, and they have a machine that just sticks those in the ground and cuts the paper between them, and it's all very automated. The problem is, is then, of course, you can't really go back and change those. So if you have uh, skips... Uh, where there's a seed didn't show up and a plant isn't there, then in the field, they have to correct that later and go along with humans later and replant those, which, you know, a few percent is not a problem. 10 or 20% gets to be a big problem. Uh, in other crops, uh, for example, they have, uh, they actually, before we had uh, these in just flats, uh, particularly in, the, say, in the Netherlands and in, in Europe, where they have very sophisticated greenhouse uh, production, uh, they actually have machines with uh, with scanners, sort of robotic uh, imaging scanners that can detect where there's a skip, pop out that plant and stick in a 
stick in a, a you know, one that has a seedling in it so that they can sell 100% filled plants. So yeah, it gets pretty tricky. That's you know the the, the shifting of uh, the quality demands is getting higher and higher as we move more and more to to transplants and so on. The greenhouse just to, just to say in in the greenhouse industry in Europe, fresh market tomatoes that are that are produced in in southern Europe and so on. The tomato seeds for that are literally worth more than their weight in gold. We're talking, you know, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars a pound for those seeds. So, uh, you know, if they don't show up, it's a problem <laughs> all the way through. So, when you get into those types of crops, then you really have a lot of emphasis also on the seed quality. Uh, if you're planting wheat and uh, you know twenty percent doesn't doesn't germinate, that's okay because wheat will branch. That is, one plant will will tiller and it'll make three or four and it'll fill that space. But a lot of plants plant it and you get one. If you plant a, a head of, a lettuce seed and you want a head of lettuce, that's one one seed per one head. <laughs> so if it doesn't show up in the field, you just have uh, have empty space there. So it depends on the crop. But yes, you know, at the end point, the seed quality starts becoming really important because for the very best genetics, then uh, it's getting expensive. That is, the seeds are expensive as well. So is it worth it? I mean, to have really good quality seeds, are they dramatically better than than just okay ones? Well, it turns out it is. Yeah, <laughs> that is all of those. As you can see, all of these things that are coming together, if you're if you're really in a uh, high productivity uh, situation, say one of these greenhouses or something, and you're, you know, once they plant that greenhouse with those tomato plants, as I was saying, they may grow in there for, for nine months. The, those plants just keep growing and keep growing, and they're harvesting fruit off of those every day, sending them to the market, which is a very valuable market. That is, you, you've got a high-end uh, market coming out the other end, but those starting plants have to be of the right uh, genetics to be very productive and also have really good uh, flavor and taste and everything for the consumer. And so in the end, yes, the, uh, the producers of those, they're getting their, they're getting their value out of it. That's, there's no doubt about it. All right. And I guess, you know, in closing, I just want to give a little bit of uh, practical information to, you know, to listeners, what can farmers large and small do to help themselves at least understand what they're buying or maybe to again create seed themselves, et cetera. Like you know, any any tips you can give uh, to people that even if they want to dip their toe into growing stuff, what can they do? Yeah, I think uh, I mean it's fun to do that, and and a lot of uh, home farmers or gardeners would like to keep their own seed and so on. I think you you know one thing you have to become educated a bit on which things it's feasible and which it's not. As they say, you need to learn what is the process that's involved in making seeds in a given crop. If it's said tomatoes are a good example. People like to grow them. Uh, And generally, tomatoes are self-pollinated, meaning that they will pollinate themselves. And therefore, if it's if it's not a hybrid, if it's if it's a, an inbred line, then you can just keep that seed indefinitely. And that's what most of these heirlooms that we have are. They they're perfectly fine if you collect them. And then when you do collect the seed, be sure that you're looking for the traits that you that you want to keep. That is, if you're trying to grow a purple crim or something tomato and it's purple, don't save a, f- a fruit that didn't turn really purple for you. So in other words, uh, you know, do the selection yourself. And, and since you're only keeping a small fraction, uh, keep, keep the good fruits. Uh, you know, don't think that it's that you're economical by saying, well, that's a pretty funky fruit. It looks a little diseased. That'll be the one I'll keep for seed because I don't want to eat it. No, <laughs> then you'll just be propagating disease most likely in your in your seed. So in other words, if you want to keep your own seed, you have to be very quality conscious as well, or within two or three years, you're going to have a problem. So, you know, the, the, the thing to do is to, to educate yourself about a bit about which crops, is it feasible to keep your own seed in? You know, don't start with hybrids. If you, if you have a really good hybrid that you like, 
you can't you can't propagate it yourself because you don't have those parent uh, the male and female parents and so be sure you look on the label if it says F1 hybrid that's not a good one to start with uh, for your own seed operation otherwise the main thing is just to to pick them at the right time and uh, and then uh, make sure they're nice and make sure the seeds are dry you want to dry them uh, well out in out in the air or there are actually desiccants and so on I think it's just some uh, some type of desiccant or something and dry them and then uh, package them once they're dry package them inside of a, a jar or a, a sealed container of some kind so that they're not subject to the humidity that is if you if you store them in a moist place a lot of people say oh, i'll put it in my cellar it's nice and cool down there it's cool but it's also humid <laughs> and seeds do not like to be stored moist so the key thing mm. is if you're going to do your own uh, own uh, storage and so on and you want them to be good for the next year then uh, the best thing is to dry them well and then seal them. And then you can store them in the cool cellar or you can store them in the refrigerator and store them in a freezer if you want uh, in most cases. Uh, but the key is to to let the fruit get to its proper maturity. So, for example, there's something you may not know. If you if you had like green peppers, uh, green uh, is just an immature red pepper <laughs> or yellow pepper. So you don't want to pick if you have a green pepper, you like don't pick it when it's green. Wait till it's nice and red and mature. Then the seed will be mature as well. So as I say, you just have to educate yourself a bit about uh, the specific crops. Some I I just would not uh, tackle unless you, you really are serious. And that would be like the biennials, the turnips and the lettuce and carrots and so on, where it's really a second operation. Uh, you know, it's, you have to really have space for those crops to grow on, grow through another winter, flower the next year and so on, collect those seeds and so on. So you can do it, but it's, mm. uh, it's a whole different operation than just uh, saying, wow, that's a good looking pepper. And then just as you're about to eat it, scrape the seeds out and keep them. That's, <laughs> that's the simplest way to do it. Okay. Well, very good. Okay. Well, what's the best way for people to find out more about, you know, ecology and seeds and plants, you know, where can they go to to start learning more. I know, again, you're, you know, partially retired at least. Where can they go to see your work or where can they go in general? Yeah, well, it's, you know, just go to the web and you can find lots and lots of information on this. Uh, if you really want to save seed, probably an organization like the Seed Savers or Seed Savers organization that, that coordinates among a lot of seed people who like to save seed around the country. Commercial seed, there's the American Seed Association and others uh, you can check on and, and, and find out, uh, you know, lists of companies and so on uh, that have different varieties. So pretty much now it's, it's, it's not that hard to go on the web and, uh, you know, find, depends on your scale. Again, uh, packets, if you just need packets, that's a whole different industry in, in many cases than commercial seeds that are being sold in, you know, big hundred pound lots or something. So kind of need to know your, your target and, uh, you know, and then just, just try to educate yourself on, you know, the scale of your own operation, where you fit into that whole thing. Okay. Well, very good. Ken, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Good. Thanks for talking with you. And uh, I hope everybody can appreciate how, how wonderful seeds are. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.